This morning's sermon text is Isaiah chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 32, verses 1 through 8. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. This is God's word. In between series, we just finished seven weeks in Job. I'm moving next week into a little topical series on how to develop closeness to Jesus, which doesn't presume that I understand that uh, exhaustively, but nonetheless, uh, how do we get close to Jesus? We'll take about four weeks on that. But today, Isaiah 32, in this text, Isaiah gives a vision of God's future, and the vision of God's future that Isaiah gives is set against, contextually, a broken past and a bleak present, which is instructive for us in the current events in which we're in. It says, verse 1, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. And so we get a vision of God's future. That's what Isaiah is giving us. A vision of God's future set against a broken past and a bleak present. And that's the two angles I want to take with us this morning. Utilizing this text to offer some faith perspective on what has roused our attention for the past couple of weeks since the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery before that. Killings that if uh, they're not exactly the same as those that have preceded them, they rhyme. As Mark Twain once said, history doesn't always repeat, but it does rhyme. And we don't always like history's verses. So today from Isaiah 32, a vision of God's future set against a broken past and a bleak present. First, a vision of God's future set against a broken past. Last March and April, we took a few weeks in Isaiah, and I, and I told you um, back then that Isaiah lived some 800 years before Jesus. But when you read Isaiah, as I'm getting the chance to do again here in my Bible calendar as it happens, has me in Isaiah this time of year annually. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet for our times also. He lived a long time ago, 800 years, some 800 years before the time of Jesus. And yet uh, the times that he lived in, it was, it was full of um, difficulty. Much seemed upside down. 
Jerusalem was about to be sacked by the Assyrians. That's part of the message that Isaiah bore to the people. And it was going to be an instrument. The Assyrians were going to be an instrument of, of God's judgment. And they were brutal people. And uh, Isaiah brings this message to the people and says Jerusalem is going to be sacked. And Judeans, his, his people, were going to be subsequently exiled. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good time that Isaiah ministered in. And will is a key word in this text, future tense. If, if you're looking at the text again, just the, in the first five verses, numerous, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. Down to verse three, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammers will hasten to speak distinctly. Speaking distinctly in this context is, is being able to speak about God's future. The fool will no more be called noble. Will, 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 will not, will no more. Will, 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 all through these lines. It's a key word. Why? Because Isaiah is giving a vision of God's future, first set against a broken past, what made it broken? Well, for one thing, look at verses 5 through 7. Fools were called noble. Scoundrels said to be honorable. That, that makes the past broken. They do damage. Uh, these fools and scoundrels had places of power and position. Look at verses 6 and 7. They, they have power to be able to not satisfy the craving of the hungry and deprive the thirsty of drink. These are fools and scoundrels in power. They ruin the poor, verse 7, with lying words. Even when the plea of the needy is right, they don't hear, they don't see, they don't understand, and they don't speak distinctly about the vision uh, for God's future that Isaiah is, is giving. Now, I realize scoundrel is kind of an antiquated word. <laughs> you know, when I hear this word, I think of men wearing wigs in the 1700s with frilly Sleeves grabbing a gun, you know, you scoundrel, sir, I will have satisfaction. Having a duel at 10 paces. That's kind of how we think of scoundrel. But in this context, scoundrel, looking at verses 6 and 7 in particular, the scoundrel is about satisfying himself, first and foremost. Which is why he's not honorable, despite plenty of people calling him honorable. He's not. The scoundrel is about satisfying himself. And woe to a people throughout history who end up having scoundrels over them, those who get power, who are foolish, because they're effectively unconcerned for the plea of the needy. And the plea of the needy is for justice. And justice, biblically considered, it, it's a political, social, cultural, and personal reality all rolled up into one. It's political, it's cultural, it's social, it's personal. All these realities rolled up into one. Justice is about human flourishing and the right use of power. That's fundamentally what justice is about. So if somebody is calling out for justice, they're calling out for a means to flourish. They're calling out for a, 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 a right use of power in their case. The scoundrel and the fool are bad because they are incapable of this. 
stuck on themselves as they are, they never fully humanize the cry of the needy. Now, this is not just Old Testament stuff. This is the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament. This is what the apostles were concerned about in the, in the New Testament as well. As they broadcast the gospel, the gospel is about reconciliation between God and mankind, God and people. That's fundamentally what the gospel is about. It is about, I need to be reconciled to the God that I've offended. And the implication of that reconciliation is that then we have the resources in Christ to be reconciled to our fellow people, however we find them, as much as it depends upon us. So Isaiah gives here in chapter 32 a vision of God's future set against a, a broken past in which fools were called noble among the people of God, in which scoundrels were said to be honorable. Henry James, uh, in his uh, theory of fiction, wrote that life is, in fact, a battle. Henry James' words, evil is insolent and strong, beauty enchanting but rare, Goodness very apt to be weak, folly very apt to be defiant, wickedness to carry the day, imbeciles to be in great places, people of sense and small, and mankind generally unhappy. <laughs> such is our time. And such was also Isaiah's time, which again makes him a, a prophet that's particularly didn't just have the ear of his time, but, but gets the ear of our time as well. Why were fools considered noble? How could that be? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 5 and read that chapter, you discover that there were some deep wrongs in the structure and the culture of Isaiah's nation, which was Judah. I'll just give you a sampling. This is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. <clears throat> who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Now, chapter 32, verse 5, is the echo of that. Chapter 32, verse 5, the fool will no longer be called noble. This upside-down uh, cultural reality political reality, personal reality, social reality that, that Isaiah is living in in Judah. It's no longer going to be that way. The fool will no longer be called noble, 32.5, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Things can get so upside down that only God reigning in his righteousness can turn them right side up. The answer will come from from no human being, there will be no person that will step forward and say, I will solve all of this. People can help. There are certain voices that are better than others. But there are certain situations that are so upside down, so riven with conflict and all that comes with that, that only God reigning in righteousness can turn them right side up. And what we do in the here and now is we point people to this vision of God's future. Isaiah in pointing to it is pointing to Christ. We do the same thing. It's important you know how the ministry of prophets worked. Uh, 
prophets really had two roles. They enforced the covenant that God had made with his people in calling them to himself. Prophets enforced the covenant, and they, but they also lifted the chin of, of the people when they got down on themselves and were facing the judgment of God that was part of the, the covenant enforcement. As covenant enforcers, let's just think about this for just a couple of minutes. It, it's important that we understand the ministry of prophets to understand what Isaiah is saying. As covenant enforcers, which Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets were, as covenant enforcers, they were to call God's people back to their set-apartness, to tell God's people that, look, God himself is judging us. We belong to him, but we look and act and, and believe in ways that, that indicate we don't. And so God, in making this covenant with us, he's going to bring us back and he's going to use people like the Assyrians, even in their brutality, and the Babylonians after them and those who went before and those who came after. He's going to use them to catalyze repentance. So the first of two roles prophets like Isaiah uniquely fill was covenant enforcer. Call the people back. The second role is that a people beaten down discouraged by the reality of God is going to judge us. They need to open themselves to God's future for them. And so the prophets also lifted chins. These folks Isaiah preached to had made a mess of their past. They were making a mess of their present. I gave you a flavor of that in Isaiah 5. What are those who call evil good and good evil? This was their culture, their society. And yet the future always belongs to God. God sent his prophets in so many times to tell his people, you've made a mess of your past. You've broken it. There's a lot of brokenness back there. You're making a mess of your present, but the future always belongs to God. And so prophets like Isaiah, their preaching was designed to call people back to God, but also to lift them on their feet Bow your head in repentance and lift your head in hope. Both. Bow your head in repentance. Lift your head in hope. That's what the prophet's ministry was about. Now prophets, they saw injustice. They saw it personally. They saw personal injustices. Misuses of power, denying human flourishing. But prophets, and this is what evangelicals tend to miss... And I'll be even more specific. This is what white evangelicals tend to miss. I'm not, uh, just hear me. I'm not scolding or shaming in this sermon. There's going to be no scolding or shaming. Just listen. Just hear me out. Prophets also saw and pointed to structural, systematic kinds of injustices. Because prophets knew that the nature of sin was that it infected social systems. Now, this is what white evangelicals tend to miss. We, by and large, have underthought how sin embeds in social structures. We think of sin as almost entirely personal. It's just an individual matter, mostly. But the prophets saw how sin seeped into institutions and cultures. They did, and they spoke to this. Read the prophets. It's all there. We see... Modern evangelical white 
evangelical Christians, we see sin mostly as the individual needs forgiveness. And that is true, absolutely true. When it comes to sin, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God personally. We have. And yet that personal reality, it affects social systems. And that shouldn't be a controversial point to make uh, among people of evangelical conviction. Our, our sense of sin is that it's the crack in everything. It shows up everywhere in everything, including who we are in our person, which we talk about in terms of race. Now, whatever you think of race, I realize it's an argued point. I mean, there, there's nothing in this country that isn't controversial at some level. Whatever you think of race, you want to say, well, there's only one human race and races are social constructions, or you want to think of race as sacred, or you want to think of race as superficial. There is, a, there, there is such a thing as racism. I hope we can all agree on that. And racism is, what it is essentially, is it's, it's an amplified version of meism. I like me and those who look like me most. And then we operate in that. So there, there's racism between races, obviously. There's a lot of empirical evidence for that. There's even racism within races, less obviously, but I'm thinking of my times in India. Everybody's an Indian, but there's... Uh, there's differences in the caste system, and this person of darker pigmentation is not as high up in society as this person of lighter pigmentation, and I've seen that. Richard Grant uh, is a, uh, an Englishman who, uh, with his New York wife, moved to the Mississippi Delta and wrote a book about it called Dispatches from Pluto, Lost and Found in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, they've never left. I, I don't believe they have. The book was written in 2015, but uh, at the end, she's the librarian at Mississippi Valley State, which is an HBCU, and um, they found the Mississippi Delta as uh, strange a place as somebody coming from England and New York City would probably find it, as you can imagine, but they made it their home. <clears throat> and Richard Grant being, <clears throat> excuse me, being an Englishman has a, a, an interesting perspective. He, he writes in this book in a chapter called Grabbing Smoke, which is one of the best treatments of racism I've, I've found. And I've not done exhaustive reading, but in what I've looked for, uh, I didn't read this book for that reason, but in this particular chapter, here's what he writes. We were finding the word racist to be increasingly unhelpful. They were trying to, he and his wife were trying to understand what they were seeing as they got to know white people and black people in the Mississippi Delta and got deep into both communities as outsiders who'd come in. He said, we're finding the word racist to be increasingly unhelpful because racism came in so many different forms and degrees. There were mild racists, his terms, who talked about the other, they, in ways that were not unkind, but didn't allow much for individual variation and they told jokes that weren't mean, but were gently patronizing. Then there were hateful racists who seemed to have a visceral loathing for black skin and blackness. And they put as much sneering contempt using the N-word 
That kind of racism was considered a sign of low, trashy breeding by the Delta gentry. And there was far more of it in the hills. A kind of affectionate racism prevailed among the Delta gentry. They had kind, paternalistic feelings toward black people and a genuine appreciation for black culture. They didn't want a black man dating their daughters or sitting down to eat dinner at their table because that wasn't the way things were done or meant to be. These were just a few rough starter categories and within them were innumerable variations, nuances, spillovers, and contradictions. And so then he says, Nathan Duff, a Clarksdale journalist, thought it was impossible to pin down racism in Mississippi. He wrote me a long, thoughtful email on the subject. At the core of it was this. He's quoting this journalist. There are generalities that can be drawn, trends that can be measured, evidence and anecdotes of every stripe. But even when the causes and effects are understood as clearly as possible, wrestling with racism in Mississippi is like grabbing smoke. And yet many today all over the country feel they've got the smoke. They've grabbed it. They regard racism as the ultimate sin. For them, it's very black and white. It's very cut and dried. They know it when they see it, and they want to smoke it out of society. Even secularists, not prone to make big moral pronouncements, even secularists will operate in very firm moral categories to denounce racism. There's widespread cultural scorn for anyone thought to be guilty of it. And racism is a stubborn sin, very much so. It, it, it for the most part, stays subterranean. It's, it's a thing in the heart. And it, it, gets, it expresses itself, it, it certainly does. But for a lot of people, because of the cultural scorn, the last thing they want anybody seeing of them is their racism. And that doesn't mean you go around, you know, trying to discern uh, who's probably a closet racist or not. But, but it, it's, it's this, um, if, if you find it in the heart of a believer, it, it's basically akin to saying, I just won't let the gospel change the view of people that my people gave me. We all grew up in settings and with sensibilities. I, I grew up in a small town in Alabama. And so certainly saw uh, effects uh, of, of that culturally and personally and socially and politically. And yet, uh, to talk about racism, you, you also talk about anti-racism. And anti-racism, while there's a lot of, of, of righteous indignation in it, anti-racism can also come across as very self-righteous. There, there's a certain self-righteousness in treating the sin I don't think I'm guilty of as the ultimate sin. Stanley Howes, a theologian, tells a story on himself in his memoir, which I, I read a year or two ago. Howes said he, he gave a presentation at a university where he took racism apart. He just shredded it. He showed from Scripture and history how incompatible it is with a Christian worldview it was a very triumphant presentation and uh, afterwards one of his friends was walking to the car with him and he said man you know everything you said tonight about racism is so solidly true you were on point you were on fire and yet you were so self-righteous about it I found myself wanting to side with the racists 
Racism is a sin that does a lot of soul damage. It, it, does, it does spur a right anger that, that's aimed at change. Anger can be channeled and moved in the direction of, of, of seeing what's wrong and wanting it to be right. And racism does a lot of soul damage to individuals and within social structures. We're, we're witnessing writ large the, the anger that it generates. Anger across the spectrum from righteous indignation, I see something wrong and unjust and I want it to be right to just people who are just part of the mob and want to be angry because everybody else is. There's, there's real truth decay in racism. The truth being that all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and therefore possess inherent dignity, racism essentially denies that. It, it, and, and that's why there, there's this brokenness in our past as a country and a, and a culture, particularly in how whites have treated blacks. Now, I'm grateful to say, and I hasten to say, it's, it's not a broken part of our church, First Evangelical Church in Memphis, Tennessee, because I can take you back, for example, in our archives to a document. It was a policy set by our session during the civil rights era, the 60s. During the civil rights era, our session at that time put together a policy that said if any person of color seeks entrance into our, our fellowship, they are welcome. Now, a lot of churches, you say, well, that, that doesn't sound like a lot. A lot of churches back then, predominantly white churches, they weren't doing that. Our church was. I'm, I'm grateful we have that. And I've not found aggressive, open racism in, in 17 minute years of, of ministry in our church. Though I have found the affectionate kind, to use Richard Grant's term in the book I quoted from earlier, I found the patronizing kind, and that's bad enough. But it remains a, a complicated sin sociologically in that we don't always recognize it in ourselves. We don't always recognize the ways we participate in it, prop it up. We don't even recognize the ways we benefit from it. We do, and we don't recognize that. See, I hope our church... I hope our church would never take the view that there is any sin God cannot redeem you from. Because that's anti-gospel. You know, you have people out there now saying, well, this particular, you talk about social justice, it's a great threat to the gospel. You know what the greatest threat to the gospel is? Denying its applicability to anybody. Yeah, I mean, you can get it factually wrong, absolutely. But all this friendly fire among evangelicals, ah, you don't have the gospel right because you talk about justice. Come on. The biggest threat to the gospel is our own sin. The biggest threat to the gospel is, is not applying it to people who need it. To saying that there's some sin that you can't be redeemed from. Oh, that's too gross. That's too, you know, no, no way, no way. God's not taking any more racists. He's boarded it up for them. I, this may be misunderstood, I, I hope it's not, but if we're truly gospel-centered, we care 
for justice in demonstrative ways, meaning we, we care about human flourishing and, and we care about the right use of power and we don't want to erect any superficial barriers, anything structurally that, that gets in the way of that for anyone. That, that's what racism does. We don't want to do that. But at the same time, I hope, this is what I hope isn't going to be mis- misunderstood. I hope our church is a church that welcomes the racist also. Not in his racism, as if to validate it. Goodness, no, of course not. It needs to be redeemed from that. We confront all sin. And we confront sin with grace, with amazing grace deserved by no one. And thereby, we welcome the racist, not in his racism, but in his humanity. Because he too needs to be reconciled to the God who stands ready to do that. I love the ministry of Will Campbell in this vein. Some of you will recognize the name. Some of you Ole Miss folks back in the 50s and 60s will remember Will Campbell. He was a campus minister there. He's now with the Lord. And and he marched with civil rights leaders in the 1960s. And he also befriended Klansmen. Who does that? And Will Campbell was a character. You can read his autobiography, Brother to a Dragonfly. I don't know anyone doing that today because we're such side takers and, and we're so viscerally hyperpartisan. But there he was, Will Campbell, a, a white minister, arm in arm with civil rights leaders marching, and yet a missionary to their opposition. Why? Because Will Campbell knew, knew something that you and I have to learn in 2020, and that is the gospel does not take sides. It takes over. That's really what we say to racism as a redeemed people. It's, it's what we say to our own hyper-partisanship too. You know, I would have respected it. I would have respected it. If President Trump had taken that Bible inside that church, I realize it was boarded up, but if he wanted it in there, they would have gotten him in. Take that Bible inside that church, find a kneeler, kneel on it, open that Bible to a passage that cries out to God for help, and do so, please, for the purpose of our nation. The gospel is not a take sides message, it's a takeover message. The gospel doesn't take sides, it takes over. And this is Isaiah's vision of God's future. Look at it, verse 1. A king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Which means they'll do something about where the world is most broken. Isaiah gave this vision of God's future where a king reigns in righteousness. That's meant to lift the chins. They need to bow their head in repentance, but they need to lift it in hope. And you get both in the prophetic ministry. If you think of a prophet as just scorning and shaming and and scolding people, then you've, you've only got half the message. And they didn't even do that. They confronted the people. They didn't shame them. They said to them, you ought to be ashamed of what you're doing. You're God's covenant people. You know better. You don't have to be like the other people around you. God's put his name on you, and that means something. That means he wants to use you in a, in a significant way, and that's what you're on the earth for. That's what prophets said. 
But they lifted the chins of people for whom the king reigning in righteousness could not come too soon. The Judeans and, and, the, and the people of Israel, well, they, they'd had enough of sorry kings. But then when that king came 800 years later, they weren't ready for him. They rejected him, he being Jesus, leading him to then graft us in, the nations, the ethnos, the ethnicities, the Gentiles. We get grafted into this olive tree that belongs to Israel. And now being God's people in Christ, we're, we're watching for the king of righteousness. We know his name. We know what he did 800 years after Isaiah. We're waiting for him to come back and set so much that's wrong right. That's why you long for his appearing. It's so that you see the justice of God worked out in reconciling the world to himself and renewing the creation. This is what we long for as, as, as people of God. And not just doing it here, Lord, but everywhere. Isaiah uses language that captures the moment we're in, does he not? Look at the passage. He talks at the very end of verse 2 about a weary land and storms. And, and now I'll segue into our bleak present. Our second heading. Ours is a weary land today. Verse 2. Now, if I was in Hong Kong, I could use this very same passage in reference to the social unrest there. If I was in Milan, I could use this same passage in reference to their experience of the pandemic. It's been a brutal half year. Talk about the roaring 20s. Someone trying to lighten the mood a little bit, and you appreciate that every now and then, said, uh, is it riot season already? I still have my COVID decorations up. <laughs> How much more? And look, violence is not something Christians court because we know its nature. It's, it can't be tamed, violence. <clears throat> the rioting and the looting in the wake of, of George Floyd's murder, the, the, the anger spilling over that way, it, it's, it's just as broken. In your anger, do not sin. It's just as broken as the thing that caused it, which is also violence. Violence against the image of God and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and a host of others stretching back decades. Let none of us care more for the destruction of property than the destruction of the person. Look at this text, verse 1, a king, one king who reigns and princes, plural, who rule. Isaiah's vision of God's future given to a beleaguered people living in a bleak present. Why was it bleak? Verse 5, fools are called noble. Scoundrels are said to be honorable. Evil was being called good and good evil. Chapter 5. The shadow of the Assyrian threat was looming over the land. They would sack Jerusalem. They would. They would haul off its citizens. Isaiah puts a view of God's future where the beleaguered people living in a bleak present can get to it. And what is that view? A king 
one king will reign. And princes, plural, will rule. And in the New Testament, these princes are also known as ambassadors of reconciliation, also known as the kingdom of priests, also known as peacemakers. It's a gospel analogy here in Isaiah 32. A preview of the effect on society, an upside upside down society. The effect that the people of God who've been made right side up in His grace and goodness and justice the difference those people can make, the people who know the king. And what effect is that? In this context, the princes do the king's work of setting wrong things right, which means human flourishing, which is what justice is, the right use of power. Again, justice is about political, social, cultural, and personal flourishing, all rolled up into one under a right use of power. So these princes... In Isaiah's vision of God's future, the princes minister the king's justice and the effect is, verse 2, it's like a hiding place from the wind. Verse 2, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. That's what we want, don't we? In today's hot take context. Say something about this now or you don't care. Post about it or you're complicit in it. Hostility has become a greater asset than letting your gentleness be evident to all. And gentleness and passivity are not the same thing. Paul's words to the Philippians, let your gentleness be evident to all. We're turning on each other, even in the church. What's evident about these princes is they they go to work in their present in light. They go to work in their present in light of the vision of God's future that the prophet gives. And so what is the effect of that? Well, they come across weary people. They come across parched people. They come across fed up people who want change, who want something to be different, and yet need to get the king's shelter. Because when you get that, then you see, then you hear, then you understand, and then you speak, even if you stammer, you still speak to God's future. I'm giving you the progression in the text. Look at it, verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will not give attention. Eyes first, then ears. Heart of the hasty will understand and know, then the understanding. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. And in this context, speaking distinctly is being able to speak about God's future. The princes see. Verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be closed. They don't turn away from where the world is most broken. They help others not to either. That doesn't mean you have to keep watching the news. There's there's nothing about our calling that means we have to watch a lot of news. Sometimes you can watch too much news. And when you keep watching traumatic things over and over and over again, it dominates you. And so the, the good practice of emotional mental health 
is to say, I, I know what's going on. I'll read a little bit. I look at it a little bit, but I'm not going to live in that because it's not good for you. You see, you see it. You don't turn away from it. You know it's happening. And you don't have to go that far around here to find where the world is broken. They see the princes and hear, second line in verse 3, give attention. Second line in verse 3, the ears of those who hear will give attention. The difference between listening and hearing is giving attention. I can listen to you but not hear you. I so wish that leftist bents weren't automatically read into concerns about justice as it is now by a certain stripe of conservative Christian. Can we listen better to what we're saying and not saying and stop reading things in that aren't there? I have great interest in active faith. I have zero interest in activism. Because I have found that activism does not speak to God's future, whereas active faith will. But as I understand active faith, it will go into where the deep brokenness and the bleakness is. Where the darkness has overcome. And ask with good courage, resourced by the Spirit of God, what can I do about this? That's, that's the very thing that took my family into foster care. Lynn and I's foster parents, which, which I wanted to run from. I had a real wrestling match with myself in the process of preparing to do this. Don't honor me for it. You know, come up. It's so wonderful. You did stop. If you knew, <laughs> well, I'm telling you now. I, I didn't want to just preach about doing justly in the words of Micah 6, 8. And I, I didn't want to just go on social media and post about the orphan. See, I care. I post about the orphan. That doesn't take anything at all, really. And can be very self-righteous. As can saying, we do foster care, why don't you? <laughs> but as God knows and Lynn knows, I almost backed out of it. In, in fact, I... I'd be interested to see the video footage uh, at Landers Ford in Collierville one night in October when we were coming back from foster care training, Lynn and I, and, and I had to pull over. I was about to have a panic attack. We had just listened to three or four hours on childhood trauma. And I guess I went and walked among F-150s for comfort, <laughs> you know. Uh, but Lynn and I walked through that dealership, and I just processed out loud. And my wife was so kind to me because I was cussing and hurting. You know, why the expletive? Do I want to do this? I've had this dysfunction. Why we want to bring this on us potentially and get involved with these people that are screwed up and... And I, I just, and Lynn was so kind. She goes, you know, we don't have to do it. And that was sort of the trigger. I don't have to do it. 
But I get to. You know, I get to. God wasn't letting me turn away, and, and I don't want to turn away. I need to give attention to those who can be taken advantage of and can't do anything about it. I mean, that's what justice does. And, and, and not for its own sake, you know, but, I mean, a lot of people do foster care. A lot of people feed the homeless and the hungry. A lot of people teach uh, in the worst school conditions to try to make a difference and give kids a good education in failing schools. And a lot of people do this and that and the other, but all of it has to be done in light of God's future. A light of God's future where he puts all things right. It's, God, it's so easy today to dispense snap judgments and one takes. It's just too easy to do that. And to, and to just go along with what you already think. And just, you go on social media and you, you find the people who say exactly what you think and you go with them. I hardly know anybody who listens to both sides. A lot of people talk about it. They posture as if they do but they don't. To see, to hear, to understand in light of God's future, it takes some work and it'll challenge you on both sides. And you'll have people on one side of you and the other who, who don't like that you're... But what are you about? You're about God's future. And then you speak. You see, you hear... You understand progression of the text, and then you speak, even if you stammer. I love how verse 4 is put, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. That's the difference the king makes. We're not singing a closing song today, so just give me about three more minutes. Uh, I, I, th I think Jesus works in us so that what he thinks of us matters most. And what I have found that has done in me is it's not made me calloused. It's not made me take a devil-may-care kind of position. If, if I can really get to the place where what Jesus thinks of me most is what matters, it's bracing. It holds me up. It keeps me moving toward people, which I don't find easy to do, particularly if they disagree or there's some kind of disharmony or upset. And nobody is happy today. Okay? Nobody's happy. Nobody's happy with what's going on in the world. Nobody's happy with COVID realities. You can stop writing me. <laughs> okay? I, I know. We're not happy. None of us are happy. You're not happy that we're waiting until June 21st. You're not happy that we close down ever. I mean, I, I've got, how do you live with both? I get asked that. How do you live with people who are on polar opposite sides? I say, well, Antidepressants help. Okay? <laughs> Counseling, therapy helps. But, but what I find helps the most is I have to come back to what Jesus thinks of me matters most. Okay? And then all the hammering you get, and I don't get a lot, but I get enough. All that hammering you get. When are you going to say something about this? When are you going to open the church back up? When are you going to do this and that and the other? If, 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 I don't, if I'm not listening to a different song sung by one who the prophet says rejoices to sing over me, then I'll collapse in that. I'll fade and I won't last. I'll quit. I'll be one of the carnage of pastors 
you're probably going to watch coming out of this who say, I'll get my church through this and then I'm done. Because it's just too many polar opposite viewpoints in evangelicalism now. But that's where I say you have to come back. You have to come back. You have to come back that what Jesus works in us to do is that what he thinks about us matters most. And that doesn't make you calloused. In fact, it softens you. And, and I think, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm trying it out today here with you, although you're not here. You're there behind that camera. But I think that your gentleness being evident to all requires a sense of what Jesus thinks about me matters more. Isaiah 32, our passage, it has a kind of a concentric circle approach, doesn't it? You start with the king in the center. The king will come in righteousness. And then you get the princes, and they're fanning out, and they're bringing relief, and they're bringing justice, and they're bringing perspective. And some of them even stammer out, you know, the, the, the vision for God's future. But they speak to that, because that's what people need to hear. There are human solutions to a point there are things we can get behind and offer our momentum to and our resources and our time and our voices. But ultimately, the cry of justice is only satisfied by one king. And we don't speak for speaking's sake, but to point people to God's future. And I'll say this and be done. He who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. I love how that's put about the Lord Jesus. Verse 8. In Isaiah 32. Remember Job, our friend Job? Remember in chapter 19 of Job that Job in, in his, at the lowest ebb of his life, he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. And it's like hundreds of years later, Isaiah says, that's going to happen, man. Job, it's going to happen. On noble things he stands. And centuries later today, we're awaiting it again, the reign of Christ over all, not just his church. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. The, the vision, I love this, the vision of God's future was given not as a knee on the neck, but a king standing and you know what's beautiful about that? The standing of the king is the posture of welcome. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. This is next week's text when we begin our little series in Matthew 11. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. The vision of God's future Isaiah was given it's a welcoming posture. God is for us. Though our past is broken and our present is bleak, God is for us. That's what wipes every tear away from those who know. He stands on noble things. What a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus. The perfect justice of God, which means he is good through and through. Perfect use of God's power. Trustworthy without fail. Flawless in his judgments. Generous in his grace. Jesus Christ is the source of and the means to 
and the goal of all human flourishing. There's, there's no person, there's no structure he cannot transform. And so in this bleak present that we share, I hope and pray for the church and our witness to make more explicit how Jesus marries both peace and justice in his own person and work and sends us out to do the same. Pray with me. Lord, as we uh, think about these things uh, that are troubling to us, you have given us in your word uh, no eraser for our troubles, no denial of troubles. Lord, teach us that it's really unchristian to say, I wish these things would just go away, though we do wish that. But if we take the perspective of our faith, we have to engage and that'll take a variety of different means and measures and steps and responses. And most of them, Lord, I thank you will be quiet. I thank you that this church through the years has ministered quietly, but powerfully. And though people criticize us, even from within our, our body, that we're not doing enough about this and that, you know, Lord, and thankfully you've shown me, many who are. They just don't make a lot of noise about it. And I thank you for that humble care that exists in our body for people who are going into places where it's bleak and dark and they're making a difference because they're pointing quietly but powerfully. They're pointing to the difference maker. Lord, we do need to say things. We do need to respond. We do need to give voice and, and amplification to those who, who, who cry out in their neediness. And so, Lord, let, let me not be misunderstood in this. But, Lord, keep us from every pitfall, every ditch that's so easy to succumb to in this time. Make us people, Lord, who are looking to you. It's all we know to do. And in looking to you, we want most of all Jesus Christ to be exalted in his mercy and goodness, in his just giving of himself for the unjust. We want Jesus to be praised and we want nothing to get in the way of that. And Lord, if that's not our heart, make it so. For Christ's sake we pray. May the peace of Christ rule your hearts and minds. And may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our God, one Father, one Son, one Spirit, till he comes. Amen.